Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. this morning, you may turn to Romans 6. We're going to pick up essentially where we left off. We left off at verse 19, but in order to get there, I'm going to have to do a little introducing. I know that comes as no surprise to absolutely anybody. I have a friend. I've talked about him in the past. He passed away last year. But you've heard me talk about my blind friend, John. I learned a lot of important things from Johnny through the years. John trusted me, and he would ask me questions that were really, really difficult to answer because he was born blind, so it was impossible to explain to him what colors looked like. 
He asked me one time when we were riding in the car. He had his window down. He could feel the wind on himself. He loved all that. He loved the noise around him. And he asked me, what's going by us? And I thought, well, that would just terrify you if you knew what's going by us. There are so many cars and crazy people and trees whipping by us and we're going down the road at 70 miles an hour. You'd, you'd be horrified if you knew what was actually happening. But, but I would try to describe, I would try to use language to describe to him what things were and what things looked like. But there were certain things that I just could not explain to him. Now, because he grew up with the English language, he would use words like light, though I knew he didn't know what that was. He spoke of color, but he didn't know what color was. And when he would ask me about it, it was nearly impossible to explain to him, because some things you just have to experience. You just have to see them to understand them. Okay, now that has to do actually with what we're about to read from Romans 6. Because Paul is about to say, I'm explaining these things to you in a very fleshly way, in a very naturalistic way, because of the weakness of your flesh. And I think the reason Paul said that, I think what he's getting at is we human beings have so much inherent sinfulness that we really don't know how sinful we are. And we are so blind to our own inherent sinfulness, it's impossible to explain it from God's perspective. Because we wouldn't be able to see it. We wouldn't be able to get it. We wouldn't be able to understand it now hopefully we'll get into the good portion of chapter 7 today and I will explain to our visitors I'm not always this much of a bummer to be around but chapter 7 is is difficult stuff but then chapter 7 ends on an extremely high note so it's well worth taking the journey through the difficult passages in order to get to Paul's very excited conclusion. Now let's talk for just a moment about that depth of sinfulness that is us. Because Paul is really going to bring it down to brass tacks. It's very easy for us, again as sinful people, it's very easy for us to try to make ourselves feel better about our own depravity by pointing at other things, by pointing at other people. There's a wide variety of things that we can point at. We can say, well, the problem is the world. And yeah, the world is gone crazy. Yes, the world is all in favor of the complete profanation of marriage. Yeah, so we can point at them. Yeah, uh, The world is actively killing babies right now. One of the most unsafe places to be on the planet right now is in the womb. Okay, so we can point at that and say, look, the world has just gone crazy. Amen. Or you can say, well, the problem is the church. I hear this a lot because of the circles I move in. 
Well, you know, the church, the church is the problem. The church isn't really doing what it should do, because if the church worked harder, if we worked as a unified body, then we'd have more influence on the world. And that's essentially true, but that's still just another way of pointing at something else and saying, you know, that's really wrong. They're really wrong. I can see that sin. I recognize that sin. Or it's people within the church. Well, you know what they do. You know what they're up to. You know what they said. It's always pointing outward. Well, Romans 7, Paul is going to narrow the field down to the real problem. And the real problem is you. The real problem is not something out there. The real problem is not anything you can point at unless you're pointing at you. Because the real problem is your depravity, is your sinfulness, your inherent inability to live up to the law of God. And since you can't do that, then you're constantly breaking the holy law of God. And that makes you, ipso facto, a sinner. Now, in this mad raving desire that we have to point at other things... I think it's all part of our ego at work, because if we can point at things and say, I recognize that as wrong, it's sort of a way of saying, but I'm more right than that. The very fact that I recognize that is wrong must say something good about me. I must be okay. But again, the problem is us individually our inability to be righteous and holy as God, and our inability to see that, our inability to recognize how truly, genuinely depraved we are. In fact, we think of sin, and far too often it's theologically spoken of this way, we think of sin as stuff we do. That's not what sin is. The stuff you do, sinful as it is, is because you're a sinner. You're a born sinner. The Bible says babies come out of the womb speaking lies. I've used this example many, many times. But you see her over there? Liar. Liar. (laughs) Lying her face off. (laughs) When she was a baby, before we had a chance to teach her, how to lie or tell the truth. Before we had a chance to teach her how to cheat at games, before we taught her how to be completely self-absorbed, okay, okay. <laughs> before any of that, when she was just this little tiny, little cute little creature, she would lay in bed and do the I'm starving to death cry. I mean, it would just be this blood-curdling, mama-come-get-me cry that she would do. And then when I would come rushing in, because, I mean, I, I, I would say, she's clearly dying. I, I need to get to her now. When I would get there, she wanted to play. But she knew if she did the, I want to play in the middle of the night, dad's not coming. 
So she'd lie. She was a little baby girl and she would lie. All I'm saying is the Bible's true. Babies come forth out of the womb speaking lies. Before they know how to talk, they start manipulating people based on mistruths. And it just gets worse from there. Charlie's got a couple little baby boys. Am I telling the truth? So that is our state from our earliest inception, from our earliest age, we are inherently sinful. As a consequence, we do things in our life that exemplify how sinful we truly are. It is not the things we do that make us into sinners. It's the fact that we are sinners that cause us to do the things we do. And that's what Paul is going to get into, our inherent inability to be good and he really wants you to reach the point of just utter desperation because by the end of the chapter he's going to get to help me who is going to help me who will deliver me from this body not just of sin This body of death that I live in. I mean, that's desperate. That's the desperation that we should all reach when we start to understand how sinful we truly are. I've been on the planet more years than I want to count anymore. However, Christian yesterday pointed out to me that I'm really old. And that... That helped so much that you said 45 and over, right? Is anything 45 and older is old. It's a little late to back out now. The next stage of life for me apparently is dead. That's, that's where he's put me categorically at this point. I've been on the planet long enough that I can look back on my own life and I'm horrified. I'm horrified by who I am and what I'm like. I know all the stuff I've done. I know all the places I've been. I know the thoughts and intentions that went through my evil brain and my evil heart. And if God were to judge me now on my performance, I'm in so much trouble. So that's not going to help me. So then you're going to go to church And say, well, I'm going to start doing better now. I'm going to clean up my act now. And here's something else I know about being my age, which apparently, according to Christian, is just prior to dead. I'm not going to let you live that down. (laughs) Here's what I know. Some of the things that I used to do that I don't do anymore aren't because I'm more holy It's because I'm older and I just can't do those things. Oh, but I think about it. It shows up in my brain. As much as I'd like to think I'm getting better, I'm not getting any better. Set aside by God, sanctified by the finished work of Christ, called an elect so that he is going to predestine the glory that I am headed toward. That's all true. Paul's going to say all that. But he's also going to say, every time I would do good, I find that evil is present with me. 
I mean, it's a desperate state we're in the more you understand how truly wicked and heinous sin is and how much it courses through our veins. In fact, Paul says, I find a law in the members of my body, a law that I can't do it. So I'm going to clean up my life. So I'm going to do better. So I'm going to go to church. So I'm going to put some effort in. And what's my standard going to be? I know the law of God. I've got the Pentateuch. I got the first five books. I got Moses coming down from the mountain. And Moses gives me 613 ordinances and 10 rock solid commandments. And he says, do this and you'll be righteous. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go do that and I'm going to be righteous. That's what I'm going to do. Paul yanks that rug right out from under you and says, no, no, it's the law that proved how guilty you were. Because the law demonstrates how sinful you are. So that's no help. Now I'm back to help me. Now I'm back to there. Paul's conclusion is going to be there's only one help. There's only one deliverance. There's only one savior. So we'll get there. Now, by the way, let me add one more thing. When we get to chapter 7, there are big theological discussions and debates. You can go online. You can hear the debates. You can read the debates. Big debates about when Paul wrote Romans 7, was he writing from the perspective of a saved man or previous to his conversion when he was under the law? Which perspective is he speaking from? Because there are people who would like to say that once you've come to Christ, you don't sin anymore. So consequently, Paul can't be writing from the perspective of a saved Christian if he's still talking about sin coursing through his veins. So how is he writing? Is he writing about when he was a Jew and he was under the law? Because he's going to say, after my inward parts, boy, after my heart, I desired the law. I wanted to do the law. I wanted to do right before God. So then is he writing from that perspective? Or is he writing from the perspective of a redeemed person, somebody who's already been born again, who already admits that, yes, I still have this sin problem coursing through me? The answer to that question, which I struggled with for years, was found in a lecture by Jeff's professor, Dr. Allen. Allman. And Dr. Allman said, it doesn't matter what perspective he's writing from. That's not the point. The essential point is you cannot be saved by the works of your flesh. You cannot be saved by the works of the law. And he's showing the complete inability of the law to save you in chapter 7. So it doesn't matter if you're a thoroughgoing Jew who loves the law and recognizes Moses as your deliverance, he can't save you. And if he's writing from the perspective of a saved, redeemed Christian, it's the same thing. The law can't help you. The law can't save you. So ultimately, the question of which perspective is he writing from doesn't matter. What matters, given the text, is you can't do it, no matter which side of the equation you're coming from. You get all that? Okay, that's enough introducing, I suppose. We should start reading. Remember where I began. There's just certain things you can't explain because people just can't comprehend it. 
because they're blind to it. That's what Paul writes here in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now you may recall that last week he was talking about people who are dead in sin who would then reckon themselves to be dead with Christ, then raised to walk in newness of life, and he concluded that you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. But God does not enslave people. He's simply saying, now I'm using these fleshly terms so that you'll understand because you're really so weak of mind. If I told you the depth of your sin problem, if I told you the depth of the real wretchedness of your estate, you couldn't comprehend it. So all I can tell you is you're either slave and you are obedient to the one that you have turned yourself over to. Or you're a slave to righteousness if you're in Christ. He said, I put those things in human terms so that you could comprehend it, even though the weakness of your flesh would keep you from understanding the depth of what's really going on. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members... As slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Stop right there. We'll get to the righteousness part in just a moment. But look at the way he described it because you're going to recognize yourself in this description. First, he's going to talk a lot about the members of his body. So when he talks about members, he's saying your arms, your legs, your eyes, your ears, what you look at, what you hear, the places you go, the things that you do, you're presenting your members to impurity. In other words, rather than using the members of your body to escape those impure things, rather than taking the members of your body to more righteous levels, you present your body to impurity. And 99.9% of the time, you knew it when you went there. You knew that this was wrong for you, that it was an impure place, that it was unrighteous, but you took yourself there anyway. But then what happens when you take yourself and present yourself, present the members of your body as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which is the breaking of the law? It is nomos with the alpha negative in front of it. When you make yourself slave to lawless and impurity, the result is you get better. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. You just magically get cleaned up. By no. He says when you go present your body as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, it results in more lawlessness. It doesn't get better. It just keeps getting worse. Okay, every one of you at this moment are thinking about that particular thing you wish you could stop. You're not going to stop it as long as you keep presenting yourself to it. In fact, the more you present yourself to it, the more you're going to engage in that lawlessness. Why? Because you're slave to it. It has mastery over you. It controls you. Anybody here ever tried to quit smoking? 
Tough, huh? It's hard, right? Why? Because you're addicted to it. Anybody here ever tried to stop chocolate? Yeah, that's, that's, that's mine right there. Olivia yesterday at her graduation, she had a little table with all the pictures of herself and everything. But then she covered her table with chocolate kisses. And she said, that's all anybody's going to see is the chocolate kisses. They won't notice that I didn't put a whole lot of work into this. And it worked. I mean, person after person, me in front, walked up going, oh, chocolate. Oh, little chocolate kisses. They're just little. Little Hershey's chocolate kisses. That's not much chocolate. Till you've eaten your 30th one. Just, oh, I'm going to have more chocolate. Oh, look, it's free. It's here. It's, it's chocolate. Okay, what's my point? What is my point? It's difficult to stop things you're addicted to. Paul is saying you're so addicted to your sin that it has mastery over you. You are slave to it. And because you are slave to it, you will always do its bidding. And get this right, sin lies to you. Look, where, how did sin come into the world? Sin came into the world with a lie. Yes. Satan came to Eve and said, did God not say you could eat of any tree of the garden? She said, we can eat of any tree, just not that one. We can't even touch it. She says, we can't touch it because we'll die. He says, you will not surely die. The reason God doesn't want you to touch it is he knows the day you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil, determining those things for yourself. That's a lie. That's also how sin came into the world, based on a lie. So sin will lie to you. And it does it constantly. Oh, just one more. Oh, just one more time. I'm going to quit later. Sin lies to you. That's part of how it maintains its mastery over you. Are you starting to feel desperate yet? Because in a moment, Paul's going to go on to, and you can't help it. You're, You're owned by this sin thing that courses through you that you didn't even do. That's why he already said, Adam. Your representative, your federal head. When he fell, you fell in him, proven by the fact that you're getting old and dying. The very fact that people die is proof that people are sinners, and people are sinners not by anything they did, but by the things that someone else did. So you're in this treacherous position through no fault of your own, and then on top of that, you made it your fault. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Resulting in, that word means to be separate, to be different than the world, to be different than this present sinful age. Instead of constantly presenting yourself to those things that you know are killing you, those things that you know are depraved and sinful, when you present your body to someone, present it to righteous things. Present your body to those things that you know are God-glorifying, even if it's as simple as stepping away from the thing once you recognize it as being a sinful thing. 
and it is so pernicious that it can be anything in the world. Paul says that there's nothing that in and of itself is illegal for him or lawless for him. And yet he says not everything is edifying. But then he argues that if you decide for yourself that something is a sin and then do it anyway, you're working against your own conscience and that thing becomes sin for you. Which means even the things that aren't necessarily listed in the Bible as being sins for everybody else can become sin for you. I'll give you an example. The Bible doesn't talk about smoking. Every packet of cigarettes says these cigarettes might cause emphysema and lung cancer. People smoke them anyway. Why? Because they're addicted to them even though they know they're not good for them. Well, at some point, that becomes rebellion. Are you getting the picture? You get what I'm getting at? Am I alone up here again? Present yourself as slaves to righteousness, which will result in your sanctification, your separation from this world of sin. For when you were slaves to sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. Wow, free of righteousness. I mean, not like kind of sinful, but partly righteous. Not like, okay, mostly sinful, but I got some good left in me. The theology that I grew up in was that there's a little spark of good in everyone. And what you need to do when you preach is just fan that flame of goodness And then people will get better, and then they'll make a choice for Jesus because that goodness in them rose up. No, the Bible says not only are you dead in trespasses and sins, and dead people aren't capable of doing anything, but when you are in sin and slave to sin, you are utterly free of righteousness. None, you got none. There's no little spark. There's no little flame. You're either utterly, totally sold out to sin or you're utterly, totally sold out to pursuing the righteousness of God. Unfortunately, that's a very common argument with the spiritual movement that I've faced with a lot of my coworkers is I don't want to change my life because of the Bible, but I know God will save me because I am a good person. Because I'm a good person. Yeah. Yeah. You should answer, no, you're actually free of righteousness. But look, you're free. (laughs) For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And therefore, that being the case, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Boy, that's writing to me. I just said I can look back on the course of my life And I'm horrified by the things that I see in me, the things that I know about me. And what was the benefit of those things? The Bible is honest enough to say that there's pleasure in sin for a season. And so, yeah, at the time I was doing it, it seemed good to me, felt good to me, got good to me. Whatever the reason was, I thought I was justified in doing the things I did, going the places I went, seeing the people I saw doing those things but now that I look back on it I can ask that question along with Paul what was the benefit 
What did I gain from that? I'll tell you what the benefit was. I can tell you what the gain was. I can tell you what I got from it. Guilt. And guilt will eat you up. So what is the benefit you were deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Because the outcome of those things is death. That's the benefit. The benefit is death. The benefit of all that sinning is you die, you're judged, you're out of God's presence eternally. Outer darkness, worm never dies, fire never quenched, just gnashing of teeth, wailing. That's the benefit. That's what you have to look forward to. So was it worth it? All that stuff you did that you thought was so fun at the time, was it worth it? Well, obviously not. The result of it is death because we know that the wages of sin is death. But now, verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in that same word, sanctification. It's that hagiosmos. It's it's that word that has hagias, holiness, at its root. It means to be separated to God, separated away from this sinful world. The result is your sanctification and the outcome, rather than being death, the outcome is eternal life. Now that you have been freed from sin, you are enslaved to God. Now that you are freed from sin, okay, in what way are you freed from sin? Anybody in this room want to say I don't sin anymore oh I'm the only one with my hand up guess I should take my hand down so how are you free from sin this takes you right back to everything else Paul has been building up to through the whole book of Romans so far the once for all finished sacrifice of Christ the same way that Adam sinned, and as a consequence, all mankind fell in Adam, and as a consequence, all mankind dies in Adam. The same way Christ, as our federal head, through his finished work, solved the sin dilemma for us, paid the sin debt for us, caused us to be free from our slavery to sin. And that becomes the inspiration for how we walk away. I keep saying, as Paul keeps saying, present your members to righteousness. But that's impossible for human beings to do. There's no way for human beings to get up one day and go, that's it, I'm being righteous. From now on, it's all righteousness for me. You've already messed up enough to be eternally judged. So how are you delivered to righteousness? Well, it has to be that you recognize that Christ's finished work has accomplished everything necessary for your full, complete redemption, your eternal salvation, your predestined residence in heaven with him. All of that is wrapped up in Christ. The answer always has to be Christ. The answer can't be, as he's going to say in chapter 7, the answer can't be you you can't do it regardless of how many sermons you hear no matter what religion you grew up in no matter how many people tell you just do better that was the religion I grew up in do better and I was forlorn to find out that I couldn't do any better 
I was doing the best I could do when they were telling me to do better. Help me! <laughs> I got nothing here! Well, Paul is going to say, that's right. You can't do it. The only way you are free from sin is if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And now being satisfied, now that your sin debt is fully paid, now that you are utterly redeemed, now you have the ability you didn't have before. And that ability is to pursue righteousness in your life. I never cared about what was good or what was bad when I was younger. Never cared. I just did what I did. And then one day I became aware of God as he introduced himself to me. And then I was aware that I wasn't good enough and never was going to be. And that's why I desperately needed Christ. That's why I desperately clung to the reality of Christ. It's why I stand here today at this number of years old, nearly death. That's why I stand up here and tell people over and over, Christ, Christ is the answer. Because that is the only place that you find freedom from sin. Because he paid it all. Amen. And because he paid it all, you can't pay any more of it. You can't fix anything. You don't have to fix anything. You don't want to fix anything. You want him to get all the glory eternally because of what he fully accomplished. And therefore, free from sin. Now I can sing songs like, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has died and there is remission. Good news, good news. You know, the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back without regard to sin. Because he's already accomplished that. He already came. He already died. He already resurrected. He already redeemed his people. That part's finished. He's coming back to get his church, to set up his kingdom, to wail on his enemies. Uh, that's a very unbiblical term, wail. But, it, but, but he's coming back to accomplish everything that the Bible has prophesied about him. He's not coming back to pay for sin again. The sin debt thing is paid for. That's done. Therefore, if you are in fact free from sin and enslaved to God, you do derive a benefit which results in sanctification, in holiness, in being separate. And the outcome of all that is eternal life standing in contrast to the death that results in sin. So you're either slave to sin, death eternally, or you're slave to righteousness, life eternally. That's the contrast Paul lays out. Because, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord comes back to that. It comes back to Christ Jesus. It comes back to where do you get eternal life? Where do you get freedom from sin? Where do you get the benefit of righteousness? From Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there's just 
no other place. So then that takes us to chapter 7, and we're not going to make it through chapter 7 today. So it's going to take us two weeks to get through chapter 7, but we're going to start this morning because it's against all of that backdrop that Paul is now going to write to the Jews at Rome, the Jewish contingent of the audience he's writing to, who are trying to keep the law, who are trying to accomplish righteousness by the law, he's writing to them directly and saying, the law can't help you. He's not saying that to Gentiles who aren't under the law. He's writing it to people who actually believe that they are accomplishing some level of righteousness, some level of justification by keeping the law. He has already said that the law results in death. And now he's going to say, and you're not even capable of keeping it. Don't kid yourself and think that you're being good enough to impress God. Anybody here ever worn mixed fabrics? <laughs> Anybody here ever eaten shellfish? Everybody here got a little fence border built on the roof of their house? See, right there, broke the law. We've all, there, guilty. That's eternity right there. We've all broken the law. If you look at the 613 ordinances, you broke the law. Anybody here lately killed an ox? No. So what's the satisfaction for the fact that we haven't kept the law? Christ. It's all Christ. Christ is the substance to the shadow of the oxen that were killed. So it's Christ again. What about all those ordinances that we haven't kept? What about shellfish? Ever since Christ, don't call unclean what I call clean. Or even Jesus walking around saying, it's not what you put into your mouth that makes a man unclean. It's what comes out of his mouth. It's the teaching of Jesus. It's the understanding of Jesus that makes it okay for us even though we have broken the law. Our law-breaking makes us sinful, law-breaking rebels, enemies of God. Christ died for the enemies of God. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. See, it's all Jesus. It all gets back to, to Jesus. It just can't be anything within ourselves. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. And do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Who's that? Jews. It's the Jews. It's not the Gentiles. He's writing to the Jewish believers in Rome, the ones who know the law. Don't you know that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? If you were born Abraham's seed, you were born into the obligation to keep the law. And as soon as you broke it by crying as a baby and doing the wrong cry, as soon as you came out lying, you had already broken the law. You were guilty always before the law. So he's writing to those who know the law and saying that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. By the way, that's, that's just axiomatically true. Do you know when the law loses its authority over you? When you die. Because when you die, you quit sitting. There you go. You want to quit sitting? Die. That, that's the end of it. A person is under the jurisdiction, the absolute rulership of the law as long as he lives. Now he's going to give us an analogy in order to help us understand our relationship 
to the law and to Christ. He says, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he's alive, as long as he's living. That's what the law says. The law is very clear about if you are married to a man, you are married to him for life, that's the law. But if her husband dies, then she's released from the law concerning her husband. So the law does say, stay with your husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, she's free to remarry. That's the law. So then, if, while her husband is still living, she is joined to another man, in other words, if she leaves her husband and goes to another man while he's still alive, then she is going to be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, even though she's joined to another man. Everybody understand the premise so far? Everybody got it? And he is exactly quoting what the law says. But here's the analogy he's going to build from that. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Paul has been building this theology all the way through this letter. If we are in Christ, then when Christ died, then those ordinances were nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. Therefore, if we are in Christ and Christ is in us, the law no longer has any jurisdiction over us. In other words, we died to the law. The law didn't die. We died to the law. Therefore, you were made to die to the law through the body of Jesus Christ so that you might be joined to someone else. So here's the equation he's building. From the time you were born, you were legally responsible to be joined to the law. The only way you could get away from that law was to die. See yourself as dead with Christ. Because you were in Christ when Christ died, you're free of that husband. Death has occurred. Therefore, the marriage has ended. The bond has ended between you two. You're no longer responsible to the law because there's been a death. But now you're free to marry again if you want because a death has occurred which has broken the bonds of marriage. You've been made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. To who? To Christ. To him who was raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. So if you're in Christ... When he died, you died. When he raised to newness of life, you raised to newness of life. Now that there's been a death, you're no longer married to the law. Now that you're not married to the law, you're free to marry again. You're the bride of Christ. Now you can go be joined to Christ. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body, and they bore fruit to death. But now, we've been released from the law, 
having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. This is just another one of Paul's huge, huge contrasts. It's about life and death. It's about eternity. It's about old covenant, new covenant. It's about the law that was written in stone that is external to you that can only stand there unbending, unchanging, and tell you how wrong you are, how guilty you are. The law can never bend to help you. The law can never say, oh, that's too bad. That looks like it hurt. Let me clean you up. Let's try this again. The law can't do anything to help you. The law can only tell you how wrong you are. And so he says that is that letter that he's talking about, the oldness of the letter, the letters written in stone which are against you. But that's not the way we serve. He says now that you're walking in the newness of life, we're walking by the newness of the spirit. So there used to be this external law that stood against you, but now there is the very Holy Spirit of God that resides and lives inside you that becomes the governor on your behavior, which brings you to newness of life, where you pursue those things that seek after righteousness instead of pursuing those things like you used to that seek after lawlessness and sinfulness and depravity, which results in death. But because you've been sanctified, because you've been separated, because you've been bought with a price, because you've been redeemed, because your law debt has been paid, because your sin debt has been paid, because he did absolutely everything, you are now free from that law and free to be married to him. And the end result of that is eternal life in righteousness where there's no more sickness and no more death, where God wipes away every tear, where there's nothing but joy eternal. Which deal do you want? I mean, that's the bargain he's laying out. Listen to the argument. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. By the way, don't miss that part. I say it and say it and say it and say it, and there will still be somebody on the Internet that will write to me and say, are you preaching works? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm preaching. I'm just not preaching works to get saved. The Bible preaches works. Bearing fruit doing the good works that God ordained that we would walk in. But those good works are a result of the fact that we have been saved and redeemed. They're never the cause of our salvation. They're never the inspiration for God to save us. They are always the result of the fact that we have been saved. And Paul says it here again. You were raised from the dead so that you might bear fruit for God. That you might walk in a way that's different than this world. So that you walk in a righteousness that basically extols the virtue. That basically praises by the way you live. By the way you walk. By the things you do. By the things you talk. By the things you look at. By the things you listen to. By the way you conduct yourself in this life. You are worshiping and praising the God that saved you. That separated you. That sanctified you from this world. And that is the good fruit that you bear to God. 
your life becomes fruit toward righteousness. So you are raised from the dead that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, back under the law, back thinking we could justify ourselves by the law, back thinking that if we were just good enough, if we worked harder, if we did better, that somehow we were going to improve ourselves, that's all wrapped up in what it is to be in the flesh. But back while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Okay, so what did the law do? Did the law show up and say, let me help you out. Let me show you how to be better. Let me encourage you toward more righteousness. No, the law shows up and goes, guilty. You're guilty. In fact, we won't get to it this morning, it turns out. But later, Paul's going to say, I didn't even know that I was lusting after stuff till the law came along and said, don't covet. He said, and then once the law showed up and said, don't covet, that's when I realized I was coveting. I didn't know I was coveting until the law said, don't covet. So what's the law doing? The law comes along to make sin appear all the more sinful. And our sinful passions were aroused by the law. Our sinful passions, which were always there, were pointed out by the fact that the law came along and said, don't do that. It's like, why? Why wouldn't I do that? I've always done that. Don't do that because that's wrong. I didn't know it was wrong. Well, now you know. Well, now I want to do it more. You all know I'm telling the truth. Charlie, okay. Which toy do your kids want? The one they're not playing with or the one you take away from them? Oh, yeah, like the one we're into right now is actually like a piece of supply to, to clean the, the fans. Like that's what they're into. And for some reason, you know, Elijah wakes up and he's got to have that. Yeah. Because his brother yeah. really wants that, too. Give me the one you take away from me. Yeah. yeah. Do they want their dinner or the cookie you tell them they can't have? Right. Right. They want the cookie. Why? Because you made a law. You can't have that cookie. Now I want that cookie. A minute ago, I could have lived with or without the cookie. But as soon as you say, don't eat the cookie before dinner, I want the cookies. Now she wants the cookies. See? Well, that's what the law does. The rules come along and stir up that internal passion because since sin at its core is rebellion anyway, as soon as the law says don't do it, you're like, "Uh, I can do it. I can get away with that. Sure, the speed limit through here is 25. I'm doing 50, and I'll bet I don't get caught. And if nobody saw me do it, I didn't break the law. You know you all think like that. The law is posted so that they can hold you guilty. That law's not there so that you'll drive better. It's so that they can hold you guilty and write you a ticket and say you're going too fast. We told you how fast you could go. Do you get the idea? The law stirs up your passions by pointing out the things you're doing wrong, which makes you want to do more wrong stuff. Because that's your sinful nature. While we were in the flesh, thinking we could make ourselves righteous by the things we did, by following the law, by doing better, nevertheless, our sinful passions were aroused by the law And those sinful passions were at work in the members of our body, and they bear fruit to death. But now. I love the words, but now. 
But now we have been released from the law. You know, just a personal aside for a moment. In fact, I'll stand over here so you can tell it's a personal aside. I was raised not only on that do better stuff, but I was raised on being constantly taken back to the law. Like Sinai was the answer. Like Moses was the answer. And they would tell me, yes, Jesus, and yes, Jesus died, and yes, Jesus sanctified you, but you got to come back to Moses now. Moses is where you got to live if you want to keep that sanctification. And yet I read this language that Paul is using, and he keeps saying, we've died to the law. And now here he says, we've been released from the law. He uses that language of the law being nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. And I just wish that the Christian church generally would get clear about that. Mm -hmm. That all the law does is kill. It's the ministry of death. Paul calls it the ministry of condemnation. That's what the law is. We don't live by the law. We live by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God becomes the governor on our behavior. So we don't need the external rules and laws written in stone coming from Moses. Because we are released from the law, having died to that by which we used to be bound, so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Now that he said all that, what shall we say then? Well, that's what we'll pick up next week. We're going to get to what Paul would say then. So you'll just have to come back from Virginia next week to find out what Paul would say then. Do you get the idea here? The whole idea that Paul is driving at is you've really got no method. You've really got no way to fix yourself Because your sin problem, your sin debt, is killing you. And the more you think about it, the more you muse on it, the more you're aware of it, the more you will reach the point of, help me! And if you haven't reached the point of, help me, you still don't understand the depth of your own sin. Because, as I started out this morning, you're still blind. You still don't get it. It still can't be explained to you because you just can't grasp it, which is an indication of how genuinely, truly sinful you are. Too sinful to understand how sinful you are. But it doesn't matter what you think of you. It only matters what God thinks of you. And from his perfect, righteous, holy perspective, you're nothing but evil continually without Christ. So he placed you in Christ and Christ in you to solve your sin problem. And that's the only solution. That is the one and only place you're going to find refuge. Which is why Paul is going to reach the end of chapter 7 and say, I thank God. I thank God in my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And then chapter 8 is going to begin. I can't wait to get there. Chapter 8 is going to begin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Oh, the, the news just gets really, really good. But he has to focus it in first and point out that the problem is you. 
problem is not the world. The problem is not the excuses. The problem is not what other people are doing. The problem is not the church. The problem is not. The problem is you. You need Christ. And that's where we'll get next week. Got it? Got it. Questions? Comments? Anybody want to come up and dance? No? Okay, just... You want to come up and dance? No. Oh, good, because we're all going to enjoy that. So if you... Oh, I'm sorry. No, I just want to comment. I had a friend at school who was studying theology, <clears throat> and it made me really uncomfortable because I was like, I don't think this is his exact words. I don't think it's prideful to say that we that sin has perverted us, but deep down we're good. And I was like, um, pretty sure the Bible says opposite, but yeah. I couldn't understand how I got. I think that'd be my first reply to him: is chapter and verse. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have that verse that says deep down we're good? But that is such, such, such common thinking. I mean, that really is the basis of so much of modern religion. The idea that human beings are intrinsically good. In Adam, you know, they got slightly bent or they stubbed their toe. They're not as good as they used to be, but they're still pretty good. Well, and that's why I said sanctification is the process of us being returned to that which we were. Mm. Chapter and verse? Oh, okay. <laughs> Just checking. Yeah, that's, it's such common thinking. I can't begin to tell you, but it is. Anything else? Well, all right then. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Virginia people, say goodbye to yourself. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.